Hey everyone, uh, thank you for joining us back on the Dimension Fold YouTube channel and podcast. Today I am very happy to uh, have a guest with us. It is uh, author Joshua Cutchin, and uh, welcome Josh. It's a pleasure to be here, nice meeting you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Um, I had a chance to look at... Um, uh, a couple well uh, you've got a lot of books and and they all look extremely interesting um i i wish i had uh time and money to buy them all and read them all uh but for now i have only had a really um kind of preliminary scan of uh some of the material you're working with um and it's kind of uh i don't want to say all over the map cuz uh, that but, but you I guess what I would frame it as is that you are uh, you're covering some some of the kind of familiar topics that we know and love, but you seem to be uh, adding your own twist on uh, on many of them, and then uh, bringing in um, other topics that uh, I would not have guessed were related, and just tying everything together. So even though you have uh, like a probably I don't know how many books do you have. It, it depends on how you count them. Um, okay. Yeah. Yes. So if, if you count uh, my Bigfoot book with Timothy Renner, where the footprints end, as one book, and you count my latest book, my latest three volumes that I released, Ecology of Souls, as one book, it's five. But you know, it's either it's somewhere between five and eight. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Depending on how you count it. Yeah. I mean, I was calling it eight. So so I yeah, see I see books on Bigfoot. Bigfoot. I see books on the soul. Um, and spirituality, I guess, and in and um, and also with sort of like a uh, necrotic twist, <laughs> or like uh, so you're talking about the nature of death and life and the afterlife, um, and you're talking about uh, you know the eternity of souls and and whether there are ghosts and and other kinds of paranormal phenomena. And you're talking about Bigfoot, and you're talking about UFOs, and you're you're taking some culinary twists as well, <laughs> um, yeah. and and also uh, throwing in some fairies and and other uh, kind of you know I'll use the word mythology uh, or you know whatever legend however you want to term it. Um, so it seems to me that uh, if I had to guess, I would say that you have. Um, sort of a framework in your mind that incorporates a lot of these uh, what's are seemingly uh, different topics um, but in your mind they're kind of all interrelated if not one and the same I think that's a fair assessment and you know as far as reading books goes like that's that's sort of the dirty secret of of uh, a lot of authors that I know is that we spend so much time writing books that when we get to the, the chance to read them you know we just started we're just tapped out you know because in the course of in the course of writing my books like you know I think the latest uh the ecology of souls has like four thousand in notes and about half of those are unique uh sources so or something like that wow. so uh so like I read so much for these books I really don't want to read otherwise but yeah um yeah I, th I think it's a fair assessment you know I I I have over the years found myself drifting more towards being sort of a pan paranormalist um you know I I think at the very least uh the uh the different things we think of as sort of being discrete categories like 
cryptids or the UFO phenomenon or um, or ghosts or even the faith hope, um, if they aren't all the same thing, I feel relatively comfortable saying that they're they're all Venn diagrams. Like there's some sort of overlap there. Yeah. Um. So so that's been sort of partially my guiding ethos is trying to find sort of like this uh, un unifying fabric between these topics, but also, um really trying to take things that people might mention here or there as sort of an oddity um, in a book that I might've read. Uh, they might, you know, mention it in a sentence or they might mention it in a paragraph and saying, well, wait, what does that really perhaps tell us about these phenomena if you were to unpack it? So, you know, a good example of that would be my uh, 2016 book, The Brimstone Deceit, which is all about smells in the paranormal. Because, you know, you've heard this sort of, it's almost a trope at this point, that a lot of these things smell sulfurous. Um, mm. And, you know, there are some people who would take a, a purely sort of theological look at that, and that's fine. I'm sympathetic to that as a Christian myself. But, um, you know, trying to sort of take a look at that and say, well, can we apply perhaps some sort of, you know, scientific uh, analysis of this and try to, like, actually, like, let's expand on that. Like, can you write a whole book on smells in the paranormal? Turns out you can. <laughs> there are a lot of different <laughs> smells that people report. The sulfur smell is one of them. But so that was one of them. Um, you know, some just things that people haven't really considered as being important, like the exchange of food and drink offerings, which was, uh, as you alluded to with your culinary comment, um, A Trojan Feast, which is my first book in 2015. Um, just sort of looking at like, well, do people get liquids and foods and, and that sort of thing uh, during their interactions with these other entities? And it actually is kind of a minor motif in and of itself, but no one really talks about it. And I suspect um, in a way that uh, the late Carla Turner did regarding the UFO phenomenon, that perhaps it's in these tiny little inconsequential details that we might actually gain some greater insight into these topics. So that's sort of been my my uh, modus operandi for a while is just sort of taking something small and seeing how how far can you stretch it before it breaks, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, that's, you brought up that um, concept of uh, interchange of, of food and drink. And like, you know, it's, it's pretty clear if you look at religion um, that pretty much all religions um, involve some type of offering of, of food um, and often uh, uh, liquids as well uh, to the gods. Um, so, th but this is the first time that I've really heard any mention of uh, the gods giving back other than the notable exception of manna uh, in the book of Exodus. Um, so I'm fascinated as to, uh, I guess, um, what you learned during that um, investigation, and even how you how you first uh, got into the, got onto that that idea of uh, of people getting food. I guess the first sort of origin for this, which I guess is sort of my paranormal origin story. Um, is, uh, you know, I was always sort of a monster kid. I loved monster movies and I had sort of a passing interest in some of this stuff, but it was mainly like, you know, cryptid Bigfoot focus because I didn't really uh, comprehend the role that altered states of consciousness could play in some of these encounters. And I think that's probably a fundamental aspect of some of them at least. Um, but I was working a uh, desk job at about, about an hour away and I had a long commute. So I got into paranormal podcasts and 
at the time that interest was sort of being rekindled, um, I got an Amazon gift card from my uh, sister-in-law and promptly spent it on a Bigfoot book, which was J. Robert Alley's Raincoast Sasquatch. And uh, for whatever reason, for years, I'd always known this, like, this sort of, I've always had this food taboo in the back of my head, which I learned a long time ago, which is in uh, fairy folklore, Western European fairy folklore specifically, but you can really find the motif around the world. Um, if you were to take food from the Fey folk, uh, you would find yourself trapped in fairyland forever. Um, it's oh. very, very common prohibition. Um, and so I'm reading J. Robert Alley's Raincoast Sasquatch, which is a great book. Uh, it definitely adopts the stance that Bigfoot is some sort of relic hominid. But uh, he, uh, J. Robert Alley does a great job of mentioning a lot of the indigenous beliefs. And one of the indigenous beliefs um, among some of the tribes in uh, southern Alaska along that coast is that if you accept food from their Bigfoot analog, the Bequess, um, not only is it, uh, is it not actually the salmon that it appears to be it's dried uh it's dried tree bark that's sort of been cloaked in like this fairy like glamour to appear to be salmon but you will be trapped and stay with the book west forever and i read that i'm like this just sounds like a swapped out version of this you know this this fairy food taboo mm -hmm. and sure enough um that idea of consuming food in the other world and being trapped in the other world is really a universal uh constant that you'll find across all sorts of folklores you talk to, you know, uh, mythologists and whatnot, and they'll say, oh, well, this is just a derivation of the Persephone myth, where Persephone was given a cursed pomegranate seed in Greek mythology and was, you know, condemned to, to remain in Hades for the rest of her days, only surfacing once a year. And that's fine if you're looking at sort of, you know, a European diaspora of that myth uh, throughout the old world. But you find this in, you know, New Zealand. You find the same food taboo in Australia. And as I alluded to, you find it in the New World as well, not only with Bigfoot, but also um, with stories of going to the land of the dead. If you, for example, in some of the tribes in the Amazon River uh, Rainforest Basin, uh, you'll find that if you go to the land of the dead and they give you this black corn chicha drink, if you drink it, you're stuck there with them forever. So <laughs> I, found, I found that really interesting because... To me, that implies one of three things. Um, it implies that there was a global, um, a global transference of mythological ideas at a level that we don't appreciate, which it sort of implies a global civilization to a degree. Or yep. um, it implies that something like Jung's collective unconscious, where these ideas sort of transmit between cultures without contact, is is a reality. Or it, or it suggests that there's some sort of objective reality behind these myths that gave, you know, allowed them to arise independently in so many different places. So I sort of sat on that little nugget uh, for a while and I said, somebody should write a book about this. And then after a while, I was like, I guess it's me. And, you know, <laughs> you, put your, you attach your name to this stuff and it sort of, you know, uh, clings to you, I guess, is, is the most delicate yeah. way to put it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a very rewarding experience. Um, to your point about, you know, people receiving food from gods, I mean, you've got that example of manna, but if you sort of broaden the perspective and look at, you know, a lot of the, these, uh, Hindu texts, there's, was this, you know, very sort of, uh, heavily mythologized at this point drink called Soma, which was sort of at once a plant and a drink and also an expression of the god, of the goddess, uh, belief goddess, uh, Chandra. Um, and similarly, you'll find, uh, some beliefs again. In, uh, the, in the Amazonian rainforest, where some tribes believe that uh, drinks like ayahuasca, a consciousness-altering medicine uh, that they brew down there, 
they believe that uh, that uh, ayahuasca is a gift from the gods, perhaps even the, the the semen of a divine serpent god. So mixed up in all this, you've got this repeating motif of you know sort of eating the god. And you know anyone's familiar with communion can sort of see that motif expressed in the Abrahamic tradition. And so when you take that and you place it alongside how closely a lot of these uh, modern contacts, especially in the UFO uh, milieu, how these sort of echo religious traditions, you've got to sort of wonder what they're giving people <laughs> when they, when they do give them food to drink. And yeah. as it turns out, this is something that you can find, you know, less so in Bigfoot lore, a ton of it in fairy folklore and a ton of it in the, in the UFO, uh, the UFO literature as well. Um, one of yeah. the most famous examples was, uh, in the 1960s, a uh, a uh, chicken farmer from Eagle River, Wisconsin, Joe Simonton, uh, was gifted several porous pancakes or cookies in exchange for uh, for drinking water, according to his story. It was investigated by uh, J. Allen Hynek, of all people. So uh, so there's there seemed to be some sort of truth to it, and he even had the pancakes to show for it. So, you know, it is it is a motif that sort of crops up time and time again, and, and to really unpack that was, was something of a privilege. Huh. Well, uh, now that you talk it through, uh, it reminds me of, of course, the um, the forbidden fruit uh, of Adam and Eve as well. Um, and, you know, really, there's a lot of parallels there uh, with uh, with what you were saying about ayahuasca and the soma, oh, yeah. that it's like this thing that the gods gave us a long time ago, um, rather than, uh, and that changed us, yeah. and that, that opened our eyes or whatever. Well, and, um, and you, you know, that idea of the fairy food taboo that you eat something and you're stuck in fairyland, it means you can never go home. So isn't that right. sort of, you know, isn't that sort of right out of Genesis in, in a sense as well? You yeah. may eat this and you can never go back to the way that you once were. And right. sure enough, there are some stories in the historical record about people who accepted food from the fairies. You know, most of them wind up in fairyland, but you'll find some things that sound a little bit more like real life accounts, you know, the the, the the distinction gets really murky in fairy folklore. Um, but you'll see these real life accounts where people do consume something from the good folk and they're able to go home, but they're wrecked, you know, they're they're driven mad, or they're, you know, they, they never forget the desire to return to that place that they were. So you know, in terms of symbolism, that's the same idea of never being able to return to home to the right. way that you once were. Yeah. Right. Well, and you know, maybe we're we're um we're looking at it from the other side because we we already did take it we already ate it and we can't go back um to the way we were and so like rather than it being a cautionary tale it's a uh, more of an explanation i guess yeah it's like a sh what's that phrase uh shutting the barn door after the cows have left <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like yeah 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 um and you and you know i um you know i know that you have a lot of interest in ufos in the bible um and uh, I, I, it's it's a weird line that I end up walking uh, because again, so much of this UFO stuff does look like uh, does look like a modern iteration of sort of the religious experience. Um, and honestly, you can kind of start to draw those similarities with other sort of uh, you know border borderland experiences, for lack of a better term. Um, mm -hmm. But I never have really settled on what it quite means to me. I guess my my newest book, Ecology of Souls, is probably the closest i've gotten to that um but a lot of that book is it i don't think it comes through in the text unless you know this a lot of the new book is just me like trying to reconcile this stuff and trying to find a way 
a path through it for me personally. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. It's a total mind fuck, right? When you when yeah. you start looking at this stuff, you're you can't go back to the way you were. So again, this is the the tree of life or the the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and uh, and maybe that's why, according to some theorists, um, you know, we we've had these latent abilities that were at some point in our past were shut down. Uh, because we couldn't handle it or you know so there's a, that into it as well well and, and i like what you said about you know once you look into this stuff you can never sort of go back to the way that you were because like that's something that frustrates me for the people who treat these topics as binaries right like let's mm -hmm. prove that ufos are aliens let's prove that bigfoot is a giant monkey let's etc 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 right um you know if if you do that and at the end of the day the answer is nope doesn't exist then, then you're left with with nothing in my opinion yeah, yeah and if you approach it from this sort of mythological psychosocial angle like you might be rewarded with the fact that these things exist right that's a possibility but even if you find out that there's nothing to it you still learn so much about the human condition and the way that we work um along the way and the way that we mythologize and the way that we sort of create our own reality and i think that's a really worthwhile um approach that uh doesn't get taken up as much as i think it should in a lot of these communities yeah well i i'm now i'll take the opportunity to make a point about uh, carl jung uh, because of course he did a lot of work with um um you know the psyche and and different ways of interpreting uh phenomena and phenomenology and and um really expanding kind of the our understanding of, of how the mind works and or how the mind may or may not work. And um, and so he, he often gets misquoted. Um, well, I don't know if it's not, misquoted might not even be the right word because um, I think he himself struggled for many years uh, to come to grips with it. And so he probably, uh, he probably said things that contradicted each other. Um, but we generally kind of, um, Jung's, you know, take is sort of presented as um, UFOs are, and, and, and other phenomenon are merely um, some kind of way of, of our mental manipulation from, of this data. Uh, but um, it's interesting to note that um, at the end, not even at the end of his life, but later on down the road, um, after Jung had been studying uh, a lot of weird stuff for many years, um, he uh, this there's a letter that he wrote to a to a friend of his. It's not like in a book or anything, but um, in his collected letters, uh, where essentially he says, you know, I wish I could write off this phenomenon as something that's in the mind, uh, but after investigating it, I can't. So. You know, even he um, had to admit that there was some kind of physical manifestation or you know, some kind of physical thing happening um, that we that we still can't understand. Yeah, you know, Jung has had a, a pretty significant influence on on what I what I do, and I think that if you sort of look at his entire body of work, especially since you know the red books become available, he really does start to look like a magical thinker in a lot of ways. But I. I get the sense that that never really sat well with him, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, there's some people who will selectively read 
uh, Jung's uh, treatise on on flying saucers and say, well, he believed in the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which doesn't really seem to be what it is. To me, every time I've read it, it's always seemed like him really trying to grapple with this um, this sort of uh, in-between realm that we just mm -hmm. don't have the tools to talk about because he says, you know, these things make radar returns and uh, at the same time, you know, there are things seen when there are no radar returns and uh, are we dealing with some sort of psychic effect that can have a physical impact and i think in a lot of ways that's kind of a healthy way to look at it and i think i don't think he realized this but that's sort of what's kind of been hinted at in a lot of these you know other disciplines the example that i always use because i run into a lot of people who say well bigfoot you know can't be supernatural or can't be dare i say some sort of spirit phenomena because spirits don't leave footprints and i'm like well if you look at the parapsychological literature one of the first means of ghost hunting was to spread talcum powder on the floor and wait for footprints to manifest so obviously you have something that we wouldn't normally consider physical right or tangible that's somehow leaving an impact on on the physical world similarly like you know I'm not really, I'm not really strident about the existence of these things with, with the one exception of, of psi phenomena, phenomena, which I think, you know, if people approach some of that data and some of these experiments um, on their own merits without any sort of bias are extremely compelling. And they really do seem to suggest that, you know, playing by physicalist scientific rules in a laboratory, that there's something to it. And that's a yeah. chief example of of something that we would consider a non tangible phenomena, you know, the mind mm -hmm. uh, or the thought process having an effect or interacting somehow with the physical world. So I think that sort of gives you a little bit of a gateway into to yeah. at least conceptualizing some of these phenomena. And I realize that there are plenty of people, probably people listening right now, um, who think that you know, for example, with the UFO question, it's aliens or it's nothing. And I, I think that there's a lot of ground in between there that could explain some of what we've seen. And and Jung right. was definitely a champion of that. Yeah. And so I think you were referring there to uh, some of the studies that the U.S. government and uh, several universities uh, collaborated on. Um, is um, is uh, MKUltra one of those, or, is, or are you thinking of different ones? Well, MKUltra is not really my ballywick. I mean, I think of normally of MKUltra as being, you know, experiments with with hallucinogens slash psychedelics that were oh yeah right, right. It, it, in in my estimation like trying to open up i mean almost like trying to force demon possession into people uh, right you, right i mean so that's a little they, bit all the deep end but, um yeah it wasn't really the psionic stuff so what's no. the name that that was stuff when that uh, happened under well you know the, the i always find it funny that the same people who don't believe in uh psychic phenomena have been funding it themselves unwittingly through the U.S. government. So, you know, the the, uh, the Stanford uh, Research Institute (SRI) was was a big proponent of that. But you know, even their stuff was not as uh, good as some of the stuff that you've seen coming out of the out of the, out of the private sector. Um, uh, I th I'm thinking more along the lines of folks like uh, Daryl Bim, um, who has, if if you read his book, I think it's called Real Magic. Um, he talks about some of these uh, laboratory experiments far exceeding the standards by which we would judge any other any other you know phenomena in terms of cause and effect um right. i'm a big fan of rupert sheldrake uh who did a lot of uh work with uh pet telepathy of all things um oh, okay. his, his, he, he did a book on uh he did a study rather on uh dogs and owners and uh he found that you know even when the owners were miles away um out of earshot he would actually set up you know 
laboratory protocols, especially you could in the field for this. And that even when owners were miles and miles and miles away out of, you know, earshot and out of being able to be smelled or anything like that, um, the dogs would post up beside the door whenever the person began their, ter their trip home. Um, so Rupert Sheldrake, uh, Dean Radin, I think Daryl Bim's pre-sentiment experiments um, where he showed that there was people would have reactions to uh, erotic images moments before they flashed on screen. I, th I think it's really special work. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more, um, it's not as, it's a little bit more subjective, um, but uh, the work of Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia, along with Jim Tucker, um, their work on reincarnation uh, is, mm. I find to be extremely compelling. Uh, right. And of course, you know so, that. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so these are all like very highly trained, um, well educated, and um, and and steeped in academia, um, mainstream um, social scientists doing real science uh, with controlled environments and and coming coming up with incredible data. Um, so yeah, I mean, like it's well, fascinating. I mean, he... You'll find no shortage of people who want to punch holes in these um, in these experiments, and some of the complaints are valid, as you know, they are, as they would be, and some of the complaints are just like, really, what are you doing here? Um, but you know, I think it was oh, I can't always miss I always mess this up, but I think it was one of the SRI guys, the Stanford research guys. I think it might have been Russell Targ. I can't remember um, who claimed that uh, you know, as far as laboratory experiments, we have more evidence suggesting the reality of psi phenomena than we do the efficacy of uh, ibuprofen, I believe, was what he wow. said. And it's just, there's such a an adherence to what I would call the materialist paradigm that I think really is is blinding some people to it. And, you know, science philosophy is not necessarily my my specialty, uh, but, you know, if it, when I read these things, they're at least compelling enough to encourage being inquisitive and instead yeah. the establishment just tends to shut them down time and time again. Right. Okay. So let's bring this, let's bring this to either Bigfoot or UFOs, uh, your, your choice. Um, how, how this, the psionic, especially the uh, tele, uh, telekinesis and telecommunication uh, between entities, um, be they extraterrestrial or, or Bigfoot or, or some other um, phenomenon of your choice and in terms of once we once we are kind of becoming more comfortable that hey maybe there's something to um, the, this whole uh, you know mind stuff um, then that that evidence kind of transfers into some of these other phenomena. Well, in my opinion, and there was recently a. Uh a highly critical takedown of this opinion, uh, mm -hmm. specifically related to me, uh, <laughs> that appeared online a little while back. Um, but in my opinion, um, the reality of psi phenomena injects a variable into a lot of different things. Um, and it really puts a lot of really strange things on the table. Um, the example that I like to use um, is if you look at the UFO phenomenon, uh, a startling amount of stories, not just with UFO occupants, but with, you know, literally just lights in the sky, feature some sort of consciousness slash 
dare I say, telepathic component. You'll have people, you know, look at a UFO, think, you know, it would be neat to see a UFO and they see a UFO, or they'll be looking at a UFO and they'll say, they'll think to themselves, turn right, and it'll turn right. So there seems to be some sort of exchange at play there. And the thing that I always harp on is, okay, well, if even some of the most basic UFO sightings include this psi phenomena, then kind of every explanation is back on the table, right? You know, there's this real drive to say, oh, um, you know, these are nuts and bolts spacecraft with flesh and blood beings inside. But I think that's just an outgrowth of, again, this materialist idea. The only thing that can be, the only thing that exists is physical matter, right? That's sort of what the materialist paradigm or physicalist paradigm holds to. Right. And, uh, and there have been numerous science philosophers who have said things like, you know, the existence of telepathy would break that particular scientific paradigm. Um, so if you are seeing, if, if you kind of, as a ufologist, have to accept the existence of telepathy, and I don't know, like even I think of Stanton Friedman, who is like one of the nutsiest, bolsiest kind of ufologists, even he ex acknowledged the existence of telepathy, then you kind of have to say, well, it could be extraterrestrials, but it could also be a lot of things. That just look like that you know it could be yeah. something involving these altered states of consciousness it could be interdimensional it could be um you know for lack of a better term i guess my current uh understanding would be sort of a spirit phenomena um right. well but, that's a good um, point yeah. too because like uh, again back to uh religion is it's almost universal that uh religions have some form of telepathy baked right in uh under the guise of prayer um, or um, and many times there's um, pretty explicit examples of uh, of the prophet uh, receiving some kind of communication. Um, so yeah, I, I think that um, I think you're right. I think that no matter what explanation you choose, there's there seems to be some kind of telepathic um, portion happening there. Well, and, you know, the, the analogy that I always use, because some people will push back, despite many scientific philosophers saying that something like telepathy would break materialism, the example that I always use um, is, let's say we've got a black and white film, right? And if you watch it, like, there's just black and white, right? But if you introduce just one color, green, um, it didn't take away black and white. So, you know, we don't have to, like, say that materialism didn't help us build airplanes and artificial hearts and all that stuff. Black and white still exists, but there's green now. And so it's no longer a black and white film. There's some sort of outlier that's involved in this that we hadn't previously considered. And mm -hmm. once you discover that, I would think that that would imply the existence of a lot of different colors. Yeah. So, you know, so from the ufological perspective, that's like saying, well it's a black and white movie and we've introduced green, but the aliens are going to be black and white. Well, no, it, it could be a lot of strange things. Right. Well, and I mean, there's, there's all these other ideas that, that play into here. Like you mentioned, um, uh, Dean Radin, uh, his, he did a lot of work on the Akashic field. Um, we've also got um, uh, an, an idea that's really, uh, becoming quite popular now is um, simulation theory, and both of those uh, definitely break. Um, uh, you know, sorry, I forget how you said that. Um, they, they, uh, they just they inject a variable or yeah. a host of variables that 
kind of ask us if we know anything, you know, like I, 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 pr I probably won't be able to put my hand through this desk, but if, the, if that's, you know, if that's a possibility now, then who, you know, who knows, you know, well, I'm yeah. interested, I'm interested in somebody who obviously has a thorough, th thorough biblical knowledge on um, like yourself. What's your take on simulation theory? Because for me, it's just like, it's just like reworked theology for like, like materialist nerds in a way like it, it, uh, it in and, a and way it, yes um so you that's one way that 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 it could work so um but basically um i i think i tend to think of it like this um so for one there's there's also this concept of multiverse which uh of course is fraught with difficulty in terms of logic um, and timelines and things like that and falsifiability um, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. so i don't i don't really um embrace the multiverse per se um in terms of how we generally understand that to work uh but um i think it, i think simulation theory implies that um uh there is actually an underlying reality because if the if if the world is if the universe is software um what hardware is it running on um so i'm i'm also a computer engineer so these are kinds of things that i like to think about um, that's a great question though that's a great question right but also if there's one simulation running then there are almost definitely more than one because you wouldn't you wouldn't invent a thing and then only run it once um so it's it's almost kind of comes to game theory as well um whereas if um if this universe is uh, can, you can think of it as like a giant video game um but there's there's more than one person playing that video game not necessarily at the same time but that's another another twist on it is maybe it's a giant massive uh, multiplayer game uh or maybe it's a one one person game um but millions of people own it and are running it themselves um so i think the, these are really um kind of fascinating um models if you will as that you could kind of think about that that, that they would parallel yeah i mean you know I, I really actually kind of resonate with it to a degree as a metaphor um my my main problems with it are that just sort of to me it anthropomorphizes the nature of reality in a way that i don't think you kind of can like i would think that whatever is running the simulation would be so super positioned and so foreign to us that it sort of disrupts the first order assumptions that we have about this metaphor of like video games and so you know and software in general um yeah. but you know but, but but as a metaphor i i do i do uh resonate with it to a certain degree because you know there are all these different traditions um that do speak of things like you know the hindu with the veil of maya and uh and uh you know even some ideas about the higher self sounds a lot like a video game yeah, <laughs> avatar exactly. model um so but but you know there was this great quote um that um that hans holzer and brad steiger had um where uh brad steiger is talking with hans holzer and he says you know what I always thought uh, that these things uh, came from other dimensions. And Holzer basically says, how is that any different than saying, you know, fairyland or, or the afterlife or any number of things that we've said 
right. you know, over the years. So um, I guess in some sense, like, you know, it's that falsifiability problem that I have with things like the multiverse um, because it, I read some people with like, you know, lots of letters after their names um, <laughs> and, uh, and it just kind of sounds like, it almost sounds like a theological argument that it does. Yeah. Know, a really scientific well, argument. Yeah. And I guess my biggest problem with the multiverse, and I think this is a showstopper right here. And that is that, um, okay. If the, if the multiverse exists uh, in, in the flavor that is, that is kind of, um, you know, being, being um, embraced by a lot of the, the, marvel movies that are happening now and that kind of thing where it's like every possible thing is 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 real somewhere um okay if that's true then it becomes meaningless because if every possible thing is true it's exactly the same as nothing being true there's it's like so what okay there's there's really nothing to grab onto um there's like even even if you take back as go back a step and and look at it as like a a branching timeline instead which is mm -hmm. slightly different um then i i would i would be i'm much more amenable to the concept of of multiple branching timelines um because uh there's actually some meaning to it where okay something changed or you know something uh there was an action that caused something whereas mm -hmm. in the multiverse causality it becomes a moot point because it doesn't matter what caused anything because everything is always happening all the time that is a fascinating counter argument and one that i'm gonna i'm gonna steal and credit you with. <laughs> okay. not, not, not in my writing but in my conversations i mean I yeah think that's yeah I think that's a that, that's that's a really good point. I mean, at the very least, on like you know, a, a philosophical level, that's certainly true. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um. So you know, I mean, so you know, I've kind of been. So I'm. I guess I'm more sympathetic to the dimensional idea than I am the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And we could go down the road of why I have problems with the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but there, you know, it's nothing that people who haven't read Valet don't know. Um. But uh, that I'd ra I'd rather I'm more interested in not so much in what what you don't think but in what you think right so like right well i i, I think that uh one of the guiding thrusts of what i've done over the past uh you know decade or whatever um is that i i, I do think at this point that the for lack of a better term alien abduction experience um, or UFO contact experience, not necessarily all the all the things seen in the sky, but when there's an intelligence that you meet, yeah. um, is the same thing as the uh, the little people legends that you find across the world. Um, there was a time when I was much more, um, you know, uh, oh, uh, there was a time when I wasn't so sure of that. Um, uh, there was a time when I sort of said, well it's really close and you know it's 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 i can usually find an example of one in the other you know an example mm. of something in the alien abduction experience that pops up in the fairy stuff but i've it's gotten to the point where i i i'm pretty darn sure that i can find uh an example of one in the other you know even if you kind of have to tilt your head and squint i mean the thing that sort of really broke it for me <clears throat> was you know there's this long-standing trope of alien abductees having implants right 
right um in various parts of their body and whenever they're excised they're always um or almost always i guess i should say um mundane bits of material right it's like some iron or something calcified or you know it's just it's always just sort of mundane and of course the skeptical explanation is that these are bits of know porcelain or glass or you know splinters or something that get lodged in the body and just sort of stay there over time and the body has its natural defenses which which you know gather around them um you know the people who adhere to the extraterrestrial hypothesis will say well it's you know technology that's so advanced it doesn't even seem to be technology and you know <laughs> there are all these claims of like <laughs> yeah. signals signals that are up from them and stuff but what really broke uh the distinction between the the alien abduction stuff and the, and the fairy stuff was you know not only the great work that Jacques Vallée had done with 1969's Passport to Magonia, which outlined a lot of those similarities quite uh, extensively, but it's when I learned about the fairy blast. <clears throat> and uh, blast, blister, and blustery all share the same root word. So if you offended the fae folk, especially in Western Europe, but you can find analogs for it among the Yoruba and among you know, North American tribes, etc. But um, if you offended the fae folk, um, they would hit you with a fairy blast of blustery wind, and it would leave a blister on you. And if you were to have that lanced or excised, uh, you would always find, you know, bits of just trash in there. You'd find teeth or bones or old nails or or bits of metal or, you know, any number of things. And I th that to me is just so specific that you have these entities that exhibit a lot of the behavior that we see in the modern UFO scenario, leaving these little artifacts behind in people's bodies. I'm like, okay, this is, I, and I'm not saying that fairies are aliens or aliens are fairies. Obviously I'm certainly more sympathetic to the idea that the aliens are fairies because of the way that I've gone in recent years. But, uh, but I think that they're the same, they're the same phenomenon that sort of recontextualizes itself over time to be more appealing. Yeah, well, that's interesting because um, there's a couple of instances in the uh, in the Bible where Yahweh does uh, essentially that exact same type of scenario. Yeah, there's that, and then there's you know once you start looking at this through that sort of religious lens, then you you get all these examples. I mean, not only you know in the Abrahamic traditions, but uh, it's a very common motif to find. Uh, you know, spirit darts and things like that that are sent to you by the spirits and how to be taken out. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, for example, in some Yoruba cultures, um, you might offend a spirit and it might place, you know, a leaf inside your body that has to be taken out. And there are some modern doctors in Africa who claim to have actually taken these, you know, foreign objects out of people's bodies. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely part, seems to be part of that broader, um, that broader expression than it does like, oh, people put a tracking device in an alien abductee's head. And this isn't to say that I think it's all made up. I Quite to the contrary. I just think that like there are so many similarities that you can find between these things that it really does suggest to me that we've been interacting with something that is just culturally dependent on the way that it appears. Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, if there's, that's one thing that I'm absolutely 100% uh, sure of is that if there's any kind of phenomenal uh, phenomena at all, and there obviously is something happening. Mm -hmm. um, that phenomena has been has been being recorded uh, for all of recorded history. Uh, no matter uh -huh. where you look, no matter which phenomenon you're looking at, you can find something uh, somewhere culturally recorded thousands of years ago. I agree a hundred percent. It's it's a traveling companion. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's been. It's been here, I think, for as long as we have, uh, we, as long as we have, rather. 
Yeah. 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 And so, so like, that's the, a lot of what I do is sort of an outgrowth of that. Some people would call me a fairy expert and I would not say that's the case. There are plenty of people who can, uh, who have a much more encyclopedic knowledge of just the fairy thing. Um, mm -hmm. My interest is mainly on the intersection of fairy folklore with other phenomena. So like, you know, I see some of that reflected in the Bigfoot stuff. I mean, a good example of that would be uh, the braiding of horse manes. You know, um, nowadays people will find their horse's manes uh, braided overnight in, the, in a barn. And there's a contingency of Sasquatch people who believe that it's Bigfoot sneaking into barns and <laughs> braiding people's horse's manes. There's been a couple of people who claim to have seen this happen. I found an example of a Russian researcher who claimed to have seen it with uh, an Almasti, one of their Bigfoot creatures. Mm. But, and there's a lot of rational explanations for why horses' manes look braided. But if you would take that exact same um, scenario, you know, a horse's mane miraculously appearing braided overnight, and you were to transplant it to, you know, Cornwall or Devon or, you know, in Germany or something, it would be blamed on witches or fairies. And it's interesting to me that we, you know, regardless of the objective reality of either of these scenarios, it's interesting to me that we see this same, you know, rather mundane anomaly mm -hmm. and we attribute to it whatever our culture says is sort of the boogeyman <laughs> that right. we have. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I, I do a lot of cross, uh, I guess, um, comparative uh looking at these different topics and the thing that I've, the, the idea that I've been on lately, which sort of has kind of upended my perspective of everything um, is that there is an implication that sort of hides in that fairy alien similarity that I don't think has been really explored as, as thoroughly as it should have been. And I tried to do it with uh, ecology of souls, um, a new mythology of death and the paranormal available now, folks. Um, but it's, um, it's the idea that like a lot of these cultures, if you look back before the rise of theosophy in the late uh, 19th century, a lot of these cultures tended to associate fairies with the human dead. And, you know, if you use the transitive property, what does that say about these modern aliens that we see? And then you layer onto that, uh, a quote that has sort of haunted me forever, ever since I heard it was, uh, after the publication of communion, in 1986, uh, Whitley Strieber, the world's most famous UFO abductee, was inundated with tens of thousands of letters from other experiencers. And he, his wife at the time, Anne, um, was sort of, from what I can gather, kind of treating the situation where she was sort of his assistant in, in, in looking and reading through this correspondence. And Whitley says that he walked into the study one day and he saw you know, a series of observations that she jotted down. And one of the ones that stuck with him was she wrote, this has something to do with what we call death. And you've got people who see dead loved ones in the UFO <laughs> scenario. Um, so you've got, you know, the fairies being associated with the dead and then this sort of the most prominent modern alien abductee saying this too. And it, it suggests to me that there is something to do with, if not death specifically, sort of the cycle of of reincarnation and rebirth um, that I suspect takes place. Um, so, you know, uh, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's an objective reading of what the situation is, but it works for me. You know, it's allowed me to incorporate a lot of strange outliers that I didn't know what to do with before. Right. Um, 
Yeah, and that's so that's what Ecology of Souls Volume One and Volume Two is. And I know it sounds like I'm shoehorning in a sales pitch, but no, that's been, uh, but that's fascinating because I, I'm not aware of anyone really who's who's uh, made a connection like that before. But you know, well, it's it's weird. It's kind of been hinted at through the years. Like you've got, you know, Kenneth Ring who did this this great near-death experience work, and he says, Oh, the alien abduction stuff really looks like the near-death experience. And you'll find people who say, Oh, the Eddie Bullard, uh, former Indiana University folklorist, um, did the same with between alien abductions and shamanic initiations in different, you know, indigenous cultures. And Again, use that transitive property. What does it start to say that the NDE yeah. is kind of the contact experience, is kind of the shamanic experience? I mean, so many of these shamanic initiations are predicated on at least a symbolic, if not <laughs> literal, death and rebirth. You know, so that's it's right. this idea that sort of just winds its way through a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, um, I, I, I mean, just in terms of my experience up to this point, I. I haven't really um, put a lot of those together uh, in terms of like that, um, like directly, uh, but a lot of the stuff seems to flow indirectly through the concept of the Akashic field. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if, if there is an Akashic field and if we can, um, if we can plug into it and if, then maybe also the dead can plug into that and we can, we can connect, contact them that way or the the extraterrestrials um would certainly know how to uh, plug into that field yeah i mean that's sort of the waters that you end up finding yourself in when you sort of uh take this route is that you start flirting with ideas like monism if you're familiar with that you know which is it which is a message that's you know echoed in countless um near-death experiences but also you know ufo abductions you know we are one with the one that is all it is the me right. within the there are all these messages of of unification and breaking down boundaries um yeah. you know a very liminal thing with liminality yeah. is a big factor in the paranormal but there's all this this talk of like just this sort of oneness and this lack of distinctions between things that really does speak to exactly what you said something that's been formalized more like the akashic record or you know i think rupert sheldrake would probably call it his theory of morphic resonance but i think it's getting at the same thing really yeah yeah well and and you know there's one thing that we're really good as a species and that is division so, I mean, obviously we're great at dividing yeah. uh, between each other, um, but also we, uh, we have to, and I believe this is a necessary skill that, we've, uh, that we have, have come to possess, possibly by eating the fruit of the gods or whatever, but that the skill that we are able to uh, divide concepts. And so we're able to throw an idea into this or that basket. Um, and, and it's Im critically important to do so but we also have to realize that it's in some way just not true. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that probably speaks to, you know, humankind's true superpower, which is just our adaptability. Like, you know, people yeah. can talk all day about our intelligence or our brains or this or that or the other. But to me, the way I see it, like, we are just so darn it. Like, we find a way to look at situations, separate them and sort them like you alluded to and find a way to make it work <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's just and what we do whichever basket it goes into it's like oh it's in that basket okay let's do this oh right. it's in this other basket okay let's do this yeah. it doesn't matter which which is almost kind of the point i was saying about why the uh, multiverse is doesn't doesn't make sense uh because 
whatever. It's just a different basket. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. I'm still me. I'm still in this basket. Like, or yeah. I'm not. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, and you know, I'm not entirely sure that like human beings can wrap their mind around uh, the actual idea of alternate dimensions. Even if they're like five or something, it's still mind-boggling because you know people think of it as like a place that you go or like a, yeah. you hop in a machine. It's like basically the equivalent of a reality bending time machine or something but if you read like flatland that essay like yeah about a two-dimensional stick figure and someone puts their finger on the paper they don't see the finger they just see a circle like i don't think we can even conceptualize what a right. dimension truly well, would so, be but that's a really great point because um I, i'm also trained in physics and uh so in physics we deal with multiple dimensions all the time but it's not what you think um in fact you also are dealing with multiple multiple dimensions um, just even normally as you're deciding what clothes to put on this morning, uh, because color is a different dimension than size and mm, uh, mm. shape is a different dimension than, uh, you know, fat, what texture your fabric is. So if you're, des if you're describing your shirt, um, you're already looking at a four dimensional object right there. It's black. It's a uh, t-shirt shaped. It's um, it's made of cotton. And it's a size XL. So those are all dimensions. Like literally that is what dimension means. Um, and if you look at a database as another awesome example, because it, like literally like so much of our lives are now um, just being stored in these huge, gigantic um, data stores uh, that Google has and, and, and other companies like them, they have... Um, they have so much data on you and on me that uh, they are essentially turning each of us into um, an, a data object that might have thousands of dimensions. Um, so, for example, in in every like, just look at a you know the most basic database example of um, a house address or you know your customer. Let's look at your customer table your classic example. So uh, any business has to keep track of their customers. So they've got their name and that's stored in, in one field. And then they've got uh, their address, which is stored in a different table entirely. Uh, and it has multiple fields. It's got your street name, uh, your street at your number address, uh, your city, your country, your postal code. Um, and then all that is extrapolated. So you've got dimensions inside dimensions so right and if so you tried like, if you if you tried to port one of those um some of those fields into the other field it just wouldn't work the, the exactly. fields might not exist yeah yeah right yeah that's exactly. a, and that's an excellent way of putting it see i learned two things tonight <laughs> <laughs> no i i think that's a, that's a great way of putting it and you know when you're talking about your example with the shirt like you know the, Th these things are things that we just have such a spatial awareness of since such a young age. It really puts me in the mindset of, you know, to quote, you know, Terrence McKenna, who's been a big influence on me. Um, you know, some things are not stranger than we imagine. They're literally, they're literally stranger than we can imagine. Like you, yeah. your, your, your brain kind of breaks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, but that's the thing is that our brains are constantly evolving and our ability to imagine strange things has expanded exponentially uh, over the last hundred years. Um, so that, you know, things that would have broken your grandma's brain 
um, we are, we're, we're, you know, it's very natural for us to think about these things. That's, that's a, that's a terrifying idea. You know, just if nothing else, like the rate at which that change has happened, I think is hyper novel and uh, yeah. kind of unsettling, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we can talk about Moore's law and, and things like that in terms of how technology changes. That's nothing compared to the, the, this, you know, this non-physical, what is this? What are we even right. talking about? Is this is what is this realm? Like the realm of data, like, or whatever mm. it is, like, um, like it's so abstract, it's abstracted abstractions uh, built on other abstracted abstractions. See, this is, this is the, exactly the kind of conversation that I feel gets left out of the camp of ufologists that's measuring burn marks in a field and trying to talk about propulsion systems and all this stuff. I mean, this is so much, just so much more, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I don't think that necessarily surprised that it's more correct, but I, I, I personally have always found it more rewarding because UFOs are the gateway to talking about these other things, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I'll, since you already took the opportunity to plug your book, I'll do one for myself as well. So, my uh, my book on the Enuma Elish, the Sumerian creation myth, um, I actually talk about uh, these a lot of these concepts such as databases, um, com compute technology, and um, navigational uh, type type devices that are absolutely um, uh, com completely uh, necessary for space travel. Um, and the so to leave these out of the UFO question makes no sense at all. Mm -hmm. um, and then it turns out that uh, in, in my in the way that I'm reading between the lines uh, a little bit, um, but really not even between the lines because I'm literally reading the lines in the Enuma Elish uh, in English that are that we've already have this translation. It's open source. Um, I'm not doing any kind of uh, verbal gymnastics <laughs> you're, with, you're, with the you're language. Not, you're not von Daniking it, right? Exactly. <laughs> you're not von Daniking it, yeah. Right, right. So, so I'm not. I'm not even messing with the Sumerian language uh, whatsoever. But I'm simply reading the story as it is in English and going, "Oh, well, I'm a computer science, and to me, I, it's very clear that they're talking about um, a navigational system." And so, this is how I interpret. Um, parts of the story but also more more than the narrative itself um this gives a whole new meaning to the signs of the zodiac in terms of being a spatial system um and one of the points in that system is uh what they refer to as nibiru it's not a mm -hmm. planet at all it's the point where the galactic um uh, the plane of the of the galaxy crosses with the plane uh, of the solar ecliptic, which okay. is yeah. not not even a real thing. Another abstraction. So there's, ugh, it's all of these crazy abstractions. Um, but yeah, I go into that in my uh, commentary of the Enuma-ish. So, so a modern analog for Nibiru would be less like a planet. But like, if you were to look at computer science, it would be more something like the singularity. Like, it's almost like a concept more than it is. It's it's actually more like the the North Pole. It, okay, it's yeah. not. It doesn't exist, but it's a real place. Right. 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 
That is, I had never heard that before. That's fascinating. I'm going to check that out. That's, that's yeah. Awesome. Well, I don't think anyone's ever thought about it that way, but um, you know, that's if there's one thing I am, I'm weird. So and <laughs> we, I know you know the feeling. <laughs> we need more weirder weirdos and more heretics <laughs> among heretics. I yes, think is, you know, absolutely. You just summed it up perfectly. Um, and uh, but I do think that there's tons more uh, stuff we could talk about. So uh, maybe let's do this again. Absolutely. This was this just flew right by. It was really enjoyable. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, so thank you, Joshua. Uh, and again, everyone, this has been Joshua Cutchin. Uh, he's the author of a whole bunch of books. Uh, I'll put up his uh, his author page on Amazon, so you can uh, you can uh, hop right over to there and definitely pick up his books because uh, some of this stuff. I mean, we have not even scratched the surface of so much of this material that no one else is talking about. Uh, and uh, and really some of the stuff nobody's ever thought about before. So this is um, amazing stuff. Uh, check out his books. Uh, I know I'm going to and uh, hope and do join us again next time and uh, we'll have uh, Joshua back um, at some point in the future, not sure where, not sure when. So make sure you subscribe and you won't miss that.